Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. John, how are you? I'm well. You look the same. You sound the same. It's uh, it's season three, episode one, but uh, you're still the same guy. And you are as well. Uh, season three, episode one. I'm gonna I'm gonna floor you with another figure, uh, and you, you don't have, need to do the math because I did it already. This is our uh, we are one episode shy of our first fifty episodes. This is episode number forty nine. You are kidding. I am not because we did twenty four the first year, twenty four the second year. That's forty eight. We got this one, episode 301. That's 49. That means our next episode will be our 50th episode. How many more before we can go into syndication? I think we need 100. Yeah. And then, you know, we got to make sure all the music rights are cleared or else they'll have to change the music on the DVDs. Exactly. Not our problem. That's someone else's problem. WKRP in Cincinnati, we're looking at you. Yes, exactly. Anyway, so this is season three in this year. We're going to be listening to uh, the stories from the eighth book in the series, The Self-Working Trick. And today we're going to go with the first story in that book, which is The Invisible Assistant. I think the biggest news for you is that there, there are no, just gonna uh, ask. no okay. chapter numbers. It seems to me that we don't have to worry about that. Nope. Nope. In fact, we uh, probably will not present the stories in the order they appear in the book because it doesn't really matter. Uh, we want to mix things up a little bit and keep everything different every every episode so it won't necessarily be in the same order as the book doesn't really matter today is going to be the invisible assistant which may sound vaguely familiar to you it does sound vaguely familiar have we done this one before we did we ended season one with it as sort of as a bonus um and it was uh and is the very first eli mark short story it wasn't the first thing you recorded as the audiobook narrator but it would have been Early on, would have been early on after the third or maybe fourth book, you would have done this one. So it's a fun story and it's worth repeating this time because of the guest we're going to talk to about that story. And that is, of course, uh, the one and only Matt King. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, What I'm just going to say this now. I've said it kind of privately to you and I may have even said it on the podcast, but your ability to line up guests is second to none. Well, these are the creme de la creme of the magic community. And I'm getting a chance to hang out and chat with them because you are so good at this. I'm just thrilled by the whole prospect. Yeah. Well, I take a little tiny bit of credit, but most of it credit goes to the magic community in that uh, these people are generally very accessible and if schedules permit love to talk about their craft it's i think fun that you know season two ended with lance burton season three begins with uh his best friend mac king they both got started together so that's got a nice symmetry to it but also the story that we're listening to today the invisible assistant opens with eli performing uh his cards across routine uh, in sort of a tribute to Matt King's legendary Cloak of Invisibility routine. So it made sense to have... hysterical. Absolutely hysterical. And it made perfect sense to have Mac come on to talk about that particular trick and the the evolution of it. So what I would say is if you want to skip the Invisible Assistant, uh, you've already heard it. Probably as a longtime listener, uh, check the show notes for the time code for max interview uh or if your podcast player has indexing you can just skip ahead but otherwise uh before we talk to mac let's just what do you say jim you want him to skip your story 
I just don't, I can't support that. It's been available to them before. I'm just saying it's, I won't be hurt if you just jump ahead. But for those of you who do want to hear it, here it is right now. Here is the Invisible Assistant. The Invisible Assistant, an Eli Marks short mystery. Written by John Gaspard. Read by Jim Cunningham. Now for my next effect, I'm going to need another volunteer. I timed this statement to land just as the applause from the last trick was starting to wane. I had completed a well-received, ambitious card routine with the blonde volunteer to my left. What was her name again? Jan. Jane. Joan? And now I needed another willing soul to join the two of us on stage. You know, just to ensure that I haven't prearranged any of this, let's make the selection of the next volunteer more, I don't know, random, I said casually, as if I didn't say that same phrase in the exact same way in every show. We'll let Chance decide who will join the two of us here on stage, I continued, neatly sidestepping the need to remember the blonde's name. I'm going to toss this into the crowd, I said, picking up the bowling ball that I had made magically appear earlier in the act. And whoever catches it... Laughter drowned out the rest of the sentence, as it always did, which was convenient because I didn't actually have an ending for the sentence. I dropped the heavy ball to the stage and reached into my bag, pulling out a bright orange Nerf ball. You know, after the unfortunate incident that happened at the last show, let's try this instead. Heads up! I tossed the Nerf ball into the center of the crowd, and a hand shot up and grabbed it in midair. Terrific, I said, squinting, trying to see past the bright stage lights, which were positioned low and directly in my eyes. That was often the case when doing a corporate show in a low-ceiling hotel ballroom. Now, you toss it somewhere else in the room. The ball sailed through the room again and was snatched out of the air by another hand. Great. Now to really make it random, why don't you toss it one more time? The ball sailed across the room, flying over all the folks finishing their identical chicken lunches and headed straight toward a couple who had taken a standing-room-only spot on the far wall. Fortunately, the man had great timing, reaching out and snatching the ball out of the air before it could hit the woman in the face. With the stage lights in my eyes, this was all a squinty tableau, but I sensed that the man wasn't enthusiastic about being the final catcher in this selection process. Coaxing would be required. Impressive catch, sir, I said, stepping to the edge of the stage. Come on up and uh, give us a hand, will you? My Uncle Harry had taught me that particular phrasing, which was designed to get the audience to applaud without realizing that they were being asked to do so. They responded on cue, and the man who had caught the last toss of the Nerf ball began to move hesitantly toward the front of the room. In my new position at the lip of the stage... I was finally able to get a look at him as well as the woman he was standing with, although it took me a moment longer than it should have to recognize her. It was my ex-wife. And the guy with the great timing, who was trudging slowly toward the stage, was her relatively new husband. And what is your name? I asked as he stepped onto the stage. He glared at me because he knew damn well I knew his name. But this was a show, after all, and I had to keep things moving. Fred, he growled. Fred, I repeated with more pep than was really required. 
I traditionally always referred to him by his full name and title, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton, but I'd have to set that annoying habit aside for the time being. Fred, please step to my right, and Joan, I turned to the blonde. Melissa, she corrected. Melissa, of course, if you'd stand here on my left. I had done this routine maybe a thousand times, but the sudden surprise addition of my ex-wife's husband on stage, not to mention my ex-wife in the audience, had scrambled the routine in my head. I don't know if you folks can feel it out there, but there's a real chemistry between these two volunteers, I lied. In reality, there could not have been less chemistry on stage as witnessed by the two stiffs flanking me. I soldiered on. To demonstrate the connection, I propose we perform a short experiment using some playing cards and these two powerfully attractive personalities. The flat response this elicited from both volunteers actually produced a collective chuckle from the crowd. With that, I launched into my cards across routine, counting three cards into Melissa's outstretched hand and then seven cards into the hand that homicide detective Fred Hutton had reluctantly put forward. I caught his eye as I finished counting the seventh card, and the icy stare he gave me told me exactly how much he was enjoying his time on stage. To recap, I continued, doing my best to remember where I was in the routine and where I needed to go, I placed three cards in Melissa's hands and seven cards in Fred's hands. I nearly used his full name and title but caught myself at the last second. Now, with the help of my invisible assistant, we will demonstrate the powerful attraction between these two happy volunteers. This produced another ripple of laughter from the crowd. I plowed forward using homicide detective Fred Hutton's stone face to great comic effect as I completed each phase of the trick, calling on the help of the invisible assistant at each key point. First, when he counted the cards, homicide detective Fred Hutton found that he had eight cards. He counted again and found that he now held nine cards. At the same time, the blonde stack of cards diminished from three to two and then to one. The routine came to an end with all ten cards in Fred's hand and only one card in the blonde's. That card, of course, was her selected and signed card from the earlier ambitious card routine. The audience gave the performance a better response than it really deserved, and for a brief moment, I considered ending the show right there. But I could hear my Uncle Harry's voice in the back of my head admonishing me for considering ending the act with volunteers still on stage. The final applause should be for you and you alone, he would have said. No magician worth his salt wants to share a standing ovation with a volunteer. Although such an ovation seemed unlikely, I ushered the two volunteers off the stage, persuading the audience to give them another well-deserved round of applause. I then moved right into the classic magical snowstorm effect, which I, and virtually every other magician in the world, used as my finale when a big finish was required. I triggered my iPod with the remote switch in my pocket, and suddenly the room was filled with Nat King Cole singing Walking in a Winter Wonderland as a snowstorm appeared in my hands and blew out onto the first three rows. 
This brought the show to a quasi-rousing close and littered the stage with small bits of white paper, which I'm sure was always a delight for the hotel cleaning staff. The corporate meeting planner met me as I came off stage with a big grin and a check that, sadly, wasn't nearly as large as her smile. All in all, a profitable, if slightly bumpy, corporate show. Imagine my surprise when I saw you two in the audience, I said. Imagine my surprise when you called Fred on stage, replied my ex-wife. Homicide detective Fred Hutton declined to contribute to our conversation, instead choosing to stare at a point somewhere in a far corner of the hotel restaurant. His wife, Deirdre, was taking more delight in his impromptu performance than I might have expected. When we were married, she kept a cool demeanor at nearly all times and rarely took delight in anything especially me. We were considered to be, as many people later confessed, an odd match. That was a nice routine, she continued, with the cards moving between the people and the invisible assistant. Thanks, that's Cards Across, a classic. Next time you're in Vegas, check out Mac King's version. It's sublime. The waitress took that moment to appear with the coffee I had ordered. I stirred in some cream and took a long sip. Had I known you two wanted to see the show, I would have reserved you some actual seats. It was something of a spur-of-the-moment decision to come see you. This produced a barely audible grunt from homicide detective Fred Hutton. So it wasn't a mutual decision, I suggested. Maybe not, but here we are, Deirdre said, leaning forward, clearly finished with the chit-chat portion of the meeting. I want to get your take on something, a case we're working on. While we were married... Deirdre had risen steadily through the district attorney's office and was now well-ensconced and well-respected as an assistant DA. Her close working relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department's Homicide Division had produced several stunning murder convictions and one divorce. This last occurrence was due primarily to her too-close working relationship with homicide detective Fred Hutton, although I'm sure that somewhere, somehow, she blamed me. You've read about the Josiah Manning murder-suicide? she asked. I nodded and took another sip of coffee. I heard about it in passing, I said, but I don't know any of the details. But you know who Josiah Manning was? I shrugged. He was a big anti-death penalty, anti-suicide guy, right? The biggest. And he killed someone in the opposition? Not just someone. He basically killed the opposition. Harley Keller, the leader of what people had come to call the pro-death movement, because he believed in suicide? More than believed, Harley Keller was a true zealot. He was the suicide poster child. They have that? Weird. Although my alleged quip drew only a scowl from Deirdre, I thought I detected the faintest hint of a smile on homicide detective Fred Hutton's lips. Then it was gone as quickly as it had appeared. So let me get this straight. The anti-suicide guy who believed fervently in the sanctity of life murdered the pro-suicide guy, then to top it all off, he killed himself? That's what the police believe, Deirdre said, throwing a sidelong glance at her husband. He did not return it. Well, get Alanis Morissette on the line because that's pretty ironic. Deirdre sighed. Eli... Do you have any cultural references that are less than 20 years old? 
I was tempted to dazzle her with a Nipsey Russell-style poem on the topic, but thought better of it. So, your opinion differs from that of the Homicide Department. On several key points, yes, she said, as she began to dig through her purse. Which is why I wanted to talk to you. Why I wanted both of us to talk to you, she added. On occasion, you've offered a unique perspective that I think could be useful in this instance. I believe the phrase you used when we were married was, you have a bizarre way of looking at things. Yes, she said, leaving it at that. She pulled an iPad from the depths of her purse. I want you to look at this. She opened the cover, clicking and swiping until she found what she was looking for. This is about four years old, and it is just one of many, many similar videos. She hit a play button and handed me the iPad. I tilted it so that homicide detective Fred Hutton could see as well, but he waved me away. I've seen it, he said, crossing his arms and slouching back into his chair, setting his gaze once again on an invisible point across the room. The sound of an argument pulled my attention back to the iPad. Actually, it wasn't technically an argument as only one person was talking, or more accurately, shouting. That's Harley Keller, Deirdre pointed out as I looked at the man on the screen. He was gaunt and pale, a crew cut consisting of wisps of white hair covering his large, bony head. His eyes, which burned at someone off-camera, were sharp, steely blue. He was shouting, ranting, really, so vehemently, that small specks of white spittle were visible around his lips and on his chin. The video cut at that point to another man, who listened intently to the bile being thrown at him. Like Harley, he appeared to be in his early 60s, but there was a calmness and a warmth to him that made him seem younger. Josiah Manning, I suggested, beating Deirdre to the punch. She nodded, and I turned back to the screen. The show they were appearing on wasn't the Charlie Rose show, but they certainly could have been sued by Charlie's people. They had blatantly lifted the program's distinctive look right down to the same round oak table and deep dark backdrop. Death is a basic human right, Harley was shouting. A person has a right to their death just as they have a right to their life. If I wish to end my life, that is my personal decision, and you and the public and the state have no right to stand in the way of my decision. He stared daggers at Josiah, seeming to dare him to speak. Josiah returned the stare, but his was warm and without judgment. Don't you want to answer that? Harley snapped. Gladly, Josiah said softly. It's just that since you've interrupted me at every opportunity this evening, I just wanted to make sure that I, in turn, was not about to inadvertently interrupt you. Harley sat back and spread his hands open before him, giving the floor to Josiah. Well, I certainly respect your opinion, he said quietly. I cannot endorse it nor justify it. Life in all of its forms is sacred. It was given to us, and it's not ours to take away, whether via a lethal injection in a prison or an exhaust hose in a garage. So you insist, Harley said, cutting him off, 
that you have a right to keep me alive and I don't have a right to choose the time of my death. Is that what you're saying? But that is complete and utter. Some network sensor somewhere had pulled the sound down for the next few profanity-laden seconds of his rant, so Deirdre took that opportunity to take the iPad back and hit the pause button. Wow, I said. After seeing that, if you told me one of those guys killed the other guy and then himself, I would have sworn it was Harley Keller who pulled that trigger twice, not Josiah Manning. My point exactly, Deirdre said, as she slipped the tablet back into the dark recesses of her purse. I'm just having a bit of trouble getting the homicide department to see things my way. It's cut and dried, homicide detective Fred Hutton grumbled, and that's the truth. The truth is rarely cut and never dried, I misquoted, not at all sure what that was supposed to mean. So what does homicide think happened? Harley Keller invited Josiah Manning to his home, he began. His home? Harley Keller lived in a townhouse on Cedar Lake, Deirdre explained. Homicide detective Fred Hutton gave her a long look and then continued. Harley Keller invited Josiah Manning to his home he repeated slowly. At some point, the two must have gone upstairs to Mr. Keller's office on the second floor. While in that office, Josiah Manning shot Harley Keller point-blank in the chest. Yikes, I said involuntarily. He died almost immediately, homicide detective Fred Hutton continued, ignoring my short outburst. Josiah Manning then went downstairs, sat down in a chair in the living room, put the gun in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. Where did you find the gun? On the floor next to the chair. Powder burns? Residue was found on the fingers of Josiah Manning's right hand. How about Harley Keller? His hands were clean. I sat back and considered what I had heard. I took a sip of my coffee, which had already turned cold. Maybe someone else shot them both and then left? Homicide detective Fred Hutton shook his head. Place was locked up tight. Both front and rear entrances were secured with heavy chain locks. All windows locked from the inside. Responding officers had to break down the front door after neighbors reported gunshots. Suicide note? He shook his head. I took another sip of coffee and then turned to Deirdre. And you think it happened some other way? Yes, she said. What's odd about this, I said, as a new thought began to dawn on me, is that in reality, there were three deaths that night. This produced curious looks from both of them. How do you figure? Deirdre asked. I counted them out on my fingers for emphasis. Harley Keller and Josiah Manning both died, I said, but so too did Josiah Manning's reputation. I mean, the method of his death will now always overshadow his life's work. The anti-suicide guy will now always be known as the guy who killed himself. And Harley Keller certainly had the motive to put that reputation to rest. I finished the rest of my coffee. Can we go look at the crime scene, I said, as I stood up. Deirdre was already on her feet. I thought you'd never ask. You know how sometimes you can tell when a couple is arguing even when you can't hear them? I mean, 
just by their body language. That was the sense I got as I followed the happy couple across town to the Cedar Lake neighborhood. From my vantage point in the front seat of my car, I could see them talking in the front seat of theirs, and from where I sat, it did not look like a happy conversation. For some odd reason, that made me sad, because I figured if she had to leave me, the very least she could do would try to be happy with the guy she left me for. I mean, otherwise, what was the point? In fact, on the few occasions I had witnessed these arguments, I had to restrain myself from saying something along the lines of, geez, you left me so you could argue with him? You could have skipped the divorce and continued arguing with me. But I wisely never said that. At least, not so far. Harley Keller lived, or had lived, on Cedar Lake, the most mysterious of the Minneapolis chain of lakes, primarily because it was impossible to drive around it. You could drive past it, but not around it. His townhouse, like all the others connected to it, looked relatively new and completely identical. A different, brightly colored windsock hung in front of each entryway, probably in a failed attempt to aid in the identification process. Deirdre and homicide detective Fred Hutton were already unlocking the front door when I caught up to them. No crime scene tape, I observed. It's no longer a crime scene, homicide detective Fred Hutton grunted as he pushed the door open. I was surprised to be greeted by the sound of a yipping dog. Hey, there's a dog, I said, clearly stating the obvious. That's weird. Why is there a dog? There are a variety of pets still in residence, homicide detective Fred Hutton stated flatly. I looked at Deirdre for a more complete explanation. Harley Keller had a dog, three cats, a bird, and an aquarium. We were going to turn them all over to animal control, but the next of kin requested against that, she said. She gestured toward the identical doorway to our right. The lady next door stops in several times a day to take care of them. His next of kin are coming to town at the end of the week to handle the estate. That's quite a menagerie, I said, especially for a pro-death kind of guy like Harley Keller. Yes, it is, homicide detective Fred Hutton said with what sounded like a sigh. This was followed immediately by something that sounded like a sneeze, and then another and another. Fred's allergic to cats and dogs, Deirdre said by way of explanation. At that moment, a small mud of a dog came racing toward us, yelping happily. Because homicide detective Fred Hutton was the only one of us allergic to animals, the dog naturally went right for him. He dropped a slimy, spit-covered rubber ball at the detective's feet. Homicide detective Fred Hutton gave the ball a disgruntled kick, as he pulled out a handkerchief to catch his next sneeze. The handkerchief arrived a millisecond too late. As the dog chased after the errant ball, a large tabby cat arrived and began to wend its way around homicide detective Fred Hutton's ankles. The cat was soon joined by another cat, this one small and black. Then the dog returned with the ball, and the next phase of sneezing began. Can we proceed... Homicide Detective Fred Hutton pleaded between sneezes. By all means, I agreed. Give me the nickel tour. Sure. The dog is named Gypsy and the cats are Jinx, Penny, and... Deirdre was cut off before she could complete her list. He means a tour of the crime scene, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton barked. Oh, she said, acting innocent. 
I thought it wasn't a crime scene anymore. I put a hand up to stop them. The way you two are behaving, it feels like it could easily become a crime scene again at any moment. Could we just stick to the facts of the case? While her husband blew his nose, Deirdre pointed out the chair where Josiah Manning had allegedly shot himself. It was an oversized recliner, upholstered in a light blue plush fabric. A large blood stain covered the chair's headrest. On a hunch, I tugged on each armrest. They opened, revealing a storage chamber within each arm. Both chambers were not only empty, but spotless. Deirdre pointed out the place on the floor where he had dropped the gun. I gestured toward the chair, and she nodded her permission. I slowly sat in the recliner, taking care not to lean back on the headrest. The blood had long since dried, but human nature dictated that I keep my distance, and so I did. I mimed the motions of putting a gun in my mouth and pulling the trigger. My arm dropped to the side. I looked down to see if my imaginary gun had landed in the spot Deirdre had indicated. To my mind's eye, it was a direct hit. She then headed toward the stairway. I followed, and once he was able to disentangle himself from his animal friends, homicide detective Fred Hutton trailed behind us. We passed an impressively huge fish tank built into one wall. The fish swam aimlessly back and forth, looking exotic and colorful. I glanced at the tank and then back to the sniffling mess behind me. You allergic to fish, too? I asked, trying to hide how much I was enjoying the question. With my luck, yes, he said as another sneeze arrived. We followed Deirdre up the stairs with both cats doing their best to get under homicide detective Fred Hutton's feet as he blearily navigated the stairs. Harley Keller's office was a large room at the top of the staircase. A computer sat atop an Ikea-style desk with matching bookcases lining one wall. Photos of Harley with notables lined the other wall. The rest of the room consisted of a series of cat beds, a dog bed, and various carpeted structures designed to provide an indoor cat with the climbing experience they were being denied by being forced to live inside. To prove that thesis, a cat I hadn't yet seen was resting atop the highest structure in the room. Homicide detective Fred Hutton stood in the doorway and sneezed. As if responding to this call, Gypsy had returned and dropped the spit-covered ball at the detective's feet. Once he realized that the human had no desire to play with him, the dog sniffed at the ball and then marched over to his rag-filled dog bed, circling the bed three times before finally settling in. I looked down at a large dark brown bloodstain in the center of the room which had soaked into the cream-colored plush carpeting. Based on the position of the body and the blood splatter, it appears that Harley was shot right here, Deidre said, pointing to where the body had fallen. So, I said, trying to work out the chronology, Harley and Josiah came up here. Josiah shoots Harley in the chest. He falls there, I said, indicating the blood stain. Josiah then marches downstairs and shoots himself in the head that's the police version yes she said i stooped down from where i was standing i could see down the stairs into the living room 
However, the recliner where Josiah had shot himself was not in view. I turned to Deirdre. And what's your theory? That Harley shot Josiah and then shot himself? That makes more sense to me. Even though the facts clearly do not support that supposition, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton's voice was a little ragged from the sneezing, but his attitude came through loud and clear. I think if you insist on looking at only some of the facts, you can easily reach the wrong conclusion. I recognized Deirdre's tone and my stomach tightened in what could only be called a Pavlovian response. I crossed the room and sat at the desk, trying to gather my thoughts while the happy couple continued to squabble. I did my best to block out their bickering while I sorted through the elements of the puzzle. I knew from past experience that if Deirdre was insisting about a point this vehemently, there was likely something behind it, and it was worth pursuing. She was adamant that something wasn't quite right in what we were seeing. She didn't believe that Josiah shot Harley and then himself. And given what little I knew about the two men, I was inclined to agree. However, if Harley merely wanted Josiah dead... He could have just shot him, and then, if he was so inclined, he could have shot himself. But instead, he felt the need to kill Josiah's reputation as well. But how? I thought about all the methods I knew to get an object from one side of the stage to the other, all the ways I had learned to take something off a person without them knowing it, and the more useful art of putting something on them without tipping them off. I thought about mirrors and stooges and dual realities and other forms of misdirection. I thought about my act from that afternoon. And then a glimmer of an idea began to take hold in the back of my head, but it was having trouble making itself heard above the din in the room. Could you two please knock it off? I finally said, saying it much louder than I had intended. My volume and tone produced the desired effect, and they both stopped in mid-argument. I can't hear myself think, I added, at a much lower level. I got up and saw they were each looking at me like contrite children. I moved to the center of the room. So, this is where Harley was standing when he was shot. Deirdre nodded, double-checked it with homicide detective Fred Hutton, and then nodded again. Is it possible that someone could use a handgun like the one used in this case and shoot themselves in the chest? I mean, hold their arm out, point the gun at their own chest, and shoot themselves? I demonstrated what I meant, stretching out my arm and turning my hand back toward my chest. Deirdre started to answer, but homicide detective Fred Hutton beat her to it. Yes, but a bullet to the heart would produce nearly instant death, he said. There would be no time to get the gun downstairs, not to mention the powder burns on the hand, he added. Deirdre held up a hand for him to stop talking. He didn't look like he wanted to, but a sudden sneeze shifted his attention away from me and back to his handkerchief. Deirdre jumped on this pause. What are you thinking, she said, stepping toward me. What if it happened this way, I began, heading toward the door. Oh, do either of you have a gun? I mean an unloaded gun, about the same size that was used here. Still unable to speak, 
Homicide Detective Fred Hutton shook his head and then registered a look of surprise as Deirdre began to dig through her purse. A moment later, she produced a small handgun. I checked it out of the armory this morning, she said by way of explanation, in case we needed to reenact anything. Don't worry, it's not loaded. Great, I said, taking the gun from her, surprised at its heft. It was a little heavy, but not too heavy for what I had in mind. Also, do you have any gloves like the ones you use when sifting through evidence? Deirdre nodded at homicide detective Fred Hutton, who glared back at her. There was a short, tense standoff, and then he acquiesced. He put his handkerchief in one pocket and then pulled a pair of thin latex gloves out of the other. He handed them to me, and I pulled one onto my right hand as I sprinted out of the room and down the stairs. I ducked into the kitchen for a moment, and the couple had made it to the base of the stairs by the time I returned. Okay, I said, beginning my impromptu presentation. Let's try this scenario on for size. I'm Harley Keller, and I have just invited Josiah Manning over to my townhouse. I'm not entirely sure how I got him here, maybe something about burying the hatchet. But anyway, I invite him, and he comes over. I walked to the front door and mimed each action as I narrated. Josiah comes in the front door. I welcome him and lock the door behind him and chain the door. Then, with his back to me, I knock him out with the butt of the gun. I went through these actions, pretending to strike and then lower an unconscious body into the recliner. Now, this puts a pretty big wound on the back of Josiah's head, but that will be obliterated when I put the gun in his mouth wrap his fingers around the trigger, and then pull it. Blam! My impression of the sound of the gun was loud enough to make Deirdre jump. I patted her on the shoulder as I headed back to the stairs. Sorry about that, I said. Anyway, now, Josiah is dead, and he's got powder marks on his right hand. The first half of my plan is completed. Now for phase two. I took the stairs two at a time and then had to wait while Deirdre and homicide detective Fred Hutton trudged back up the stairs. Once again, the cats did their best to trip him up. I waited patiently for them to arrive and then waited a few more seconds for another quick round of sneezing. Okay, so now it's Harley's turn, I said, stretching my right arm as far in front of me as I could and pointing the gun back toward my chest. I shoot myself point blank in the heart drop the gun, and die a few seconds later. I looked up and smiled at the couple in the doorway. Just that simple, I added. Deirdre squinted at me, and homicide detective Fred Hutton shook his head. Now, I continued, you're probably wondering how Harley got the gun from the floor next to him, down the stairs, and next to Josiah's body. Yes, we are Deirdre said, sounding annoyed. That's the whole point. Well, I think he did it the same way I got the cards from Joan's hands to his hands during my act today, I said, gesturing toward homicide detective Fred Hutton. Melissa, he said, and then blew his nose. What? The volunteer's name was Melissa. Whatever. So, Deirdre said, clearly frustrated, how did you get the cards from her hands to his hands? I smiled. 
with an invisible assistant, I said. Before she could pursue this further, I checked that I was standing in the right spot and pointed the gun at my chest. Blam! I shouted, again making her jump. I clutched my chest with one hand while dropping the gun to the floor with the other, and then I prayed. A moment later, my prayers were rewarded as we heard the patter of paws on carpet. We turned to see that Gypsy had jumped out of his dog bed and was scampering across the room. He happily picked up the gun between his teeth. It was a mouthful, but he was able to grasp it tightly, and then he trotted out of the room and down the stairs. We followed, heading halfway down the stairs, just in time to see him drop the gun right next to the recliner. He started back toward us, forcing me to run back up the stairs to Harley's office. A dog that smart? You could teach him that trick in just a few days, I said over my shoulder. Well, that covers the gun, homicide detective Fred Hutton said between sneezes. But what about the powder burns? I returned to my position in the center of the office and peeled off the glove. In the few seconds I have left after shooting myself, I explained, I peel off the glove and drop it to the floor. I did just that. But we would have found it by the body, homicide detective Fred Hutton began, but he was interrupted by Gypsy, who ran back into the room and up to the glove. He sniffed it for a brief second, then picked it up and carried it back to his dog bed, where he began to chew on it happily. In just a few seconds, it was virtually shredded. I ducked into the kitchen and put a dog treat in that glove, I said. But I suspect that Harley probably used a linen glove and soaked it in chicken or beef broth the day before. I think a thorough examination of Gypsy's bed might even produce a few remaining tatters of that glove, which would undoubtedly have powder burns on it. Homicide detective Fred Hutton made a move toward the bed and the glove Gypsy was currently enjoying, but the dog growled and bared his teeth. The detective wisely stepped back from the dog bed. We'll look into that, he said dryly. What I'm really hoping, detective, is that you can find it in your heart not to arrest that dog as an accessory to murder. This produced a smile and a chuckle, but not from homicide detective Fred Hutton. He turned and spoke sharply to Deirdre. That's not funny. Oh, I don't know, she said. It's a little funny. You just have no sense of humor. This remark triggered a new phase of their ongoing argument. I listened for a few painful seconds and then held up my hands in protest. Here's the thing, I said as I backed toward the door. I'm happy to help you out from time to time but if it means having to endure an episode of the Bickersons every time I see you two, count me out. Deirdre gave me a puzzled look. In case you're keeping track, that reference is probably well over 60 years old. This did little to abate her confusion. Thanks again, Gypsy, for being the best invisible assistant I've ever seen, I continued, tossing the remaining dog treat across the room. The little dog jumped up and caught it in the air. As I headed down the stairs, I could hear the crunching of that dog treat, followed by the sound of an argument beginning anew. 
This was cut short by another flurry of sneezing, which was the last sound I heard before I shut the door behind me. And that is the Invisible Assistant, kind of a fun side of Deirdre and homicide detective Fred Hutton. And as it turns out, a pretty popular story. But that's not the cool part of today's episode. The cool part is we got to talk to Mac King. Yeah, he um, he is dynamite on stage, off stage, uh, and we were so fortunate to get to talk to him. Uh, I don't want to make people go away from the podcast right now, but I will say if you've never seen Mac King uh, live, go to the show notes. I put a link there to Mac performing his cloak of invisibility routine. I'm assuming on the, the link. It's on. Uh, it's a link to YouTube. It's not our channel, but it's on YouTube. Uh, I'm assuming that YouTube hasn't taken it down, but if they had, just search for Cloak of Invisibility. But you might want to go watch that first before you listen to Mac talk about it. So we'll just... They should see it before we uh, talk to Mac King about it, because if you, otherwise it's just silly. You you won't... You should watch it. We're going to sit here quietly. You go we'll do just that. Wait. We're, gonna, we're just going to talk. Or we can sit quietly for, I don't know, maybe it's four or five minutes. We could just have a little, we don't need to do that. They can pause it and come back. Put our heads on our desk. Is that what you're <laughs> Okay, we're back. I, I, I hope you had fun watching that. It's a great routine. Rather than wax rhapsodic about it for the next few minutes, why don't we just dive right in to talking to Mac? We started with a little bit of history about the routine and we took it from there. Do you remember when you first started performing Cards Across without the Cloak of Invisibility? I never did do Cards Across without Cloak of Invisibility, really. Okay. Uh, in my show. So the history of that, I mean, I had the Cloak of Invisibility before. Okay. Without Cards Across. Okay. How did you so, use it before? Uh, so here's here's kind of the evolution of that trick. When I was tw- in my early 20s, I lived, uh, I shared a house in downtown Louisville with a guy named Tom Hamilton, also a magician. Mm-hmm. And it was a big old house and uh, had a library. And so I was sitting in our library uh, reading one afternoon and Tom tiptoes in to the library wearing a clear rain poncho. And he just tiptoed around, <laughs> around the room in front of me and then back out and right before he left the room he turned around and looked at me and he goes that is right i am invisible <laughs> and then left the room and i was doubled over laugh i was laughing so hard just just the two of us in there and i had a show that night uh like an open mic thing in louisville and i'm like tom can i can i do that in my show what? Yeah, I want to do that tonight. It was a place called the 3030 Club in Louisville, Kentucky. And so he said, yeah, I mean, you can try it. And I was dating my wife at the time, my wife-to-be, and uh, she went with me that night to the club, and she was like, and I told her I was going to do this. She says, please don't do that. <laughs> please don't do that. That's not going to get any laughs. Oh. No, no, no. I was, I can tell you, I was there. It's so funny. I was laughing so hard when Tom did it. So I get, I'm on stage and I don't know, five minutes into my little spot 
I put on this poncho and I just tiptoe around the room with a goofy face and tiptoed around the room. And I was working with a mic on a stand at that time. So I tiptoe around and I get back to the mic and I say into the mic, I lean in, say, that is right. I am invisible. <laughs> and it was like crickets, like nothing. Uh -oh. Zero laughs. No one's laughing except for my wife, my fiance. Thank She's God. laughing at me, though, not with <laughs> me at all. And so it was a complete failure. But I did it the next night, also a complete failure. I did it another night, complete failure. I'm like, all right, I don't know. I guess it was a one-time thing. And it just sat in the back of my head for years. And then my friend Pete Studebaker is a magician from Texas, a trade show corporate magician guy. And uh, I watched him do Cards Across. We were just hanging out with a bunch of people, lay people in Texas after my show uh, at the Bunny Bone or the Improv. I don't remember which, but someplace in Dallas, some club. And we're hanging out and Pete, Pete did cards across and I'm like, man, that is a really graceful, well put together, well thought out handling for the sleight of hand part of that trick. And he said, I, yeah, uh, I learned that from Bob White, who's a card magician also in Texas. And uh, I said, man, it's great. I, uh, if I ever did cards across, I think that's what I would do. Then another few years goes, go by and I, and I'm thinking about cards, just thinking about new tricks. And then I think about, man, that handling Pete or Bob White's handling for that cards across thing. So elegant. Maybe I can figure out. And then, you know, one of those aha light bulb moments, I'm like, Hey, cloak of invisibility. Cause I mean, I was trying to think of a way to make that trick, you know, fit into my show. It's, you know, as it is, it's a great card trick, but it is just a card trick. And there was no hook or any Mac Kinginess to, uh, to hang it on. And so the first time putting those two things together was gangbusters. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where the end result is way more than the sum of the parts, you know, the cards across is a good trick and that cloak and visibility idea I thought was a hilarious idea, but it didn't become hilarious to the audience until it was combined with that card trick. So that's kind of how the evolution of that trick ha has happened. You know, right? it's it's sort of reinforcing something Lance told us when we talked to him about uh, Billy Toppett, where he said he, for years, for 20 years, he would just make notes about this would be cool in a movie, that would be cool in a TV show, this would be cool, without ever knowing how he's going to use it. And, and you had the good sense to somewhere in your you know, uh, mind castle, keep the cloak. And when you needed it, you know, there it was. It appeared. Yeah, that's right. Well, you must have this same sort of thing. I mean, you know, I mean, if you're writing these stories, you must think, oh, you know what? There's a, that's somehow this trick or this magic method or whatever. Well, yeah. I'll use that some, at some point. And that's true. I do have pages and pages of stuff. Yeah. That I just go through and go, oh, that's, oh, there's a library classification for magic. That's interesting. I'll drop that in here. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's it's smart to either write it down or remember it. And that's the, that's the thing that I sometimes yeah. forget. Yeah, writing, writing. Yeah, yeah. That, that memory thing is, uh, that's the hard part. Yeah. Mac, it's, so I love that story and how the a trick evolved has it uh, in performance because you've been doing how long have you been doing it now with the cloak of invisibility 
20, more than 20 years. Okay. So has, has it evolved? How has it evolved over those 20 years? Hopefully it's tightened up a little bit. I think when I first started doing it, it was like 10 minutes long. And now it's about six. And every now and again, when I do like a theater show, like a longer, you know, with an intermission and 45 minute first half, 40 minute second half, I go back to the, you know, I add back in stuff that I edited out over the years. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think, you know, initially, because Tom's, I think Tom's thing when he was tiptoeing around in our library, low those many years ago, I mean, what year, that would have been like 83. So, you know, I mean, it sat on the, you know, in the back of my head for 15 years before I did it in the show again, after that initial failure. But I think Tom was using a clear poncho, clear rain poncho, because I'm sure that's what he had. But I sort of in my head, like, okay, that's, that's one of the reasons it's funny is you can see him underneath there or whatever. And initially I, I used clear ponchos when I was doing a clear poncho, but over the course of the time, I sort of found that uh, people are more sort of familiar with the yellow one. Mm -hmm. And that for some reason got a little bit better reaction than the clear one. Well, it's brighter and it really jumps out and it's. Yeah. 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 It's certainly not invisible in any way. That's right. No, that's true. Are there other examples in your act of, of something that's uh, like a couple pieces have gestated and then they've come together and uh, created a routine? It's interesting. Billy McComb, Irish magician, uh, sort of, I mean, I don't, I don't feel like I ever unfortunately had a mentor. I didn't have anybody growing up that like a coach or whatever, or anybody to help me out. But once I met Billy, I kind of, you know, he kind of did partly become that. So in one of Billy's books, uh, 25 Years Wiser, Billy talks about combining two tricks into one routine. So I feel like I've had a lot of success kind of doing that, right? I mean, this trick and that trick together, you know, the cloak and visibility is, you know, it's not much of a trick, but it, but it's, but it's, I don't know, uh, the, the example in Billy's book, you know, is a card to wallet. He combines it with a couple of other things and makes it a better trick than just the plain card to wallet. And so that advice has sort of stuck with me. I'm trying to think in my show. I mean, the last trick before my encore, <laughs> the last trick is a, a signed bill that's destroyed and then ends up inside a telephone receiver. And over the years, I mean, when I first started doing that trick, it was based on the Terry Seabrook bill and wallet, and that I kind of did word for word. Terry sold that manuscript and wallet uh, with all of his jokes and all of his lines and all of his methods put out there for anybody to use who bought it. And I did it word for word like Terry Seabrook, you know, initially, uh, you know, in my late teens. You know, over the years, I, I wanted to change it, you know. Like you were saying, you know, the idea is to make it more and more about more and more you and mm -hmm. take these sort of standard tricks and make them more you. And so um, uh, I had when Mike Caveney's magic comedy book came out, not the big two volume thing that he recently published, but years ago, he put out a single volume called Magic Comedy and it had his uh, bill and cigar. I'm like, oh, way less people are doing the bill and cigar. Than are doing Bill in the Wallet. Yeah. And he had an intricate mechanism that a friend of mine, I, I don't know if you know the name, Tim Starr, Swedish magician. Yeah, but Tim, Tim at one point had lived in St. Louis, Missouri, 
and I happened to be staying at his house, Lance and I both, and Tim was an amazing metal worker. He, he had moved to the U.S. to work for Rings and Things, which is, was a, you know, made cups and balls and all sorts of metal, you know, linking rings and whatever. Uh, and Tim moved to St. Louis and we were staying with Tim's house and I so, showed him this drawing from Mike's book. And he said, and the next morning when I woke up, he had already made this amazing contraption out of brass and uh, a way to secretly put a, a, a signed bill inside of a sealed cigar. It was an amazing, beautiful piece of apparatus. And so I used that for a long time and it broke. And then I realized, hey, I don't need this amazing piece of brass. I can do it just uh, with some actual needle and thread inside my coat, some some sewing. You know, mm -hmm. I don't want to give away too much of this Mike's method, but I, I said, you don't need this all this contraption. You can do it so much more simple. And so then it sort of evolved to that. And years later, when I met Mike Caveney, I was telling him that I had done that. And he says, oh, you know what? Yeah, I put that method in there because I thought no one would do it. But I use the exact same method that you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> That's the method I actually use. Uh, and so then, over, but then I'm like, all right, but this is still Mike's idea, not Mac's idea. And so wanted to figure out a way to make that more my own. And so came up with this, having the money inside the phone receiver. And I think that's early. I mean, things just evolve in such weird ways, right? I mean, I feel like my show at least, but it is <laughs> more evidence in the, on the side of uh, evolution as opposed to creationism, right? <laughs> my show evolved, didn't, I, I didn't create it. And, uh, <laughs> So that bill thing with the telephone receiver, there's an old gag that my dad did for me when I was a kid where you uh, take a dollar bill and you show the wings on the dollar bill. You know this gag? So you say, can you see the wings? Say wing, wing. wing, they wing. Say, wing, wing. You folded it and you say, can you still see the wings? And you fold it so that a little bit of, of the wings are still visible. And you say, can you still see the wings? Yes. Wing, say wing, wing. They say wing, wing. wing. Fold it another time. Can you still see them? Yes. Say wing, wing. And then you fold it again and you put it on their hand and you say, say wing, wing. Can they, you say, can you see the wings now? And they say, no. And you say, say wing, wing. And you pick this up and you hold it to your head and you say, hello. So there's all this big rigmarole for this stupid gag. And uh, so my dad did that for me when I was a kid. It wasn't a magic trick. It was just something that he he knew my dad was a really funny fella so i always liked that gag and so i was working on the egg bag this is in my late teens probably working on the egg bag and trying to figure out a routine a finish for the egg bag because i never felt like i had a good finish i remember that gag and i so i got a telephone receiver with the coily cord and sewed it into the bottom of a duplicate egg bag so as the egg would disappear i would have them say chicken, chicken. And then I would say drumstick, drumstick, and it would come back. And I'd say breast, breast, and it would disappear. So I was saying all these parts of a chicken. And so the last one, the, I had switched the bag that they had previously examined for this bag that had this telephone receiver in it. They're holding the bag, and I say, say wing, wing. <laughs> and they'd say wing, wing, and I would reach in and pull out the telephone receiver and say, hello. <laughs> <laughs> That was the finish to the egg bag. But I, I never really liked that egg bag trick. Uh, and <laughs> I never had a good, I never had a really great bag switch that was, you know, that I 
felt satisfied with that was really fooling. So I discarded that, but that's still in the back of my head, right? But I, And I had these old telephone receivers sitting around and I thought, you know what? I could put the money, have the money end up inside the telephone receiver. I'd be different than anything else. And I, mm-hmm. if I use those, that word, wing, 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 is, it doesn't make any sense. But I, so I changed that in my head. I, I'm like, bring, bring are the magic words. And I use those words throughout the show. And then it's paid off at the very last part of the show by me pulling this phone out of my shoe and inside is the money. And so, I mean, that that's evolved over the course of, you know, started with an egg bag and then, but Terry Seabrook's thing and Mike Caveney's thing. And then finally some Matt King in there. And, you know, it's just, it's a circuitous thing. So this is, this will be part that you cut out where I ramble on and on. No, no. but what you're doing, Mac, is you're, you're proving our friend Louie Anderson used to say, I don't hold a grudge, but I never forget anything. Yeah, um, right. And you're not holding a grudge, but you're never forgetting anything. You're always, there's always yeah. stuff back there that you can kind of, you know, yeah. was it, uh, Jim, was it Eugene who said the problem with magicians is they stop thinking too soon? Too soon? Well, I, think yeah. that was, I think it was Di Vernon said that. Di yeah. Vernon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And and you're just proving the opposite of that. If you just keep thinking about it uh, and evolving it, amazing things can yeah, happen. I mean, I people ask me because, I mean, my show, I'm doing the same tricks, basically, as I have done the past 20 years. And people talk about how do you keep it fresh? Mm. And and that's part of it is I'm still thinking about ways to m- make it hopefully better. Mm hmm. I think it was Pat Proft who wrote some of the, you know, very funny movies of the 70s and 80s. And he said something that always stuck with me. 90% of being funny is having a good memory and just being able to reach up and grab something off the shelf that fits here all of a sudden. Yeah, that- no, I think that's right. Yeah. I don't remember which of the guys, but Penn Gillette tells this story about hanging out with fire sign theater guys. Oh, wow. When Penn was a, you know, a teen, talking them, really, you know, asking them, you know, what's the secret to comedy? And they, and one of the guys said, know everything. Mm. And sort of the same, right? You got something, yeah. you have all these things to pull from when the occasion arises. <laughs> one of the things I've heard you mention in the past, and I think the cards across. I'll probably poker. disavow this now. Well, we'll see. We'll see. The the cards across cloak of invisibility uh, is like much of your act are routines that shouldn't really play to a larger room because they are smaller things. Yet somehow you have made them so they do play to a larger room. And cloak of invisibility being a classic example of that because the audience can't see the cards; they're going to see you, and they're going to see the reactions of the. Yeah, that's one of that's one of the ones that plays the biggest, really, of all the tricks. I mean, my act is like I think I think I've said what exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I my act is really a close up magic show that I do for you know hundreds of people at a time, and the cloak is actually big because it's you know it doesn't matter what the cards are they're just objects and you see people counting and you hear counting and so that one's that one's the one of the easier ones to make visible or you know play for a for a larger group but uh some of the other stuff hard to pocket where it is does matter what the card is right you Mm -hmm. it's a signed playing card and you know it's only only that big (laughs) and so for you know i mean i and i but i've done it for like literally ten thousand live people without video magnification and play seem to play okay 
you know, I mean, I threw in a couple extra jokes that, you know, I'm sure for those of you way back there, uh, these are not stamps. They're actual playing cards, but, uh, you know, they're not postage stamps, they're playing cards. But so that kind of made me think, you know, you can do these things, smaller things for bigger people, just depending on your, your blocking and also, you know, moving your feet in a different way. There's just so many little things that you can do. But the main thing to me is every trick I do, except for the first one, there's two in the show, 10 minutes out of, out of 70, there are 10 minutes where there's not somebody from the audience on stage with. And so that's, that's, to me, that's the big key for making something smaller play larger. And the key to that is picking the right people uh, from the audience. So I have a five minute bit at the beginning where there's like, where I'm just doing the rope trick and I've done that so many times that I can, I don't have to look at my hands or the rope to do that, really. I can watch the audience and observe how people are reacting to this trick and hopefully pick the right people. You know, I mean, I'm, I picked most of the people that I'm going to use later in the show during that first five minutes. Wow. And so uh, I'm kind of making mental notes. And it's a, it's because of the show, I kind of work backwards. I got to, for the last trick, I have to have a, a man who's wearing a watch with an expressive face. And I like to pick a man who's with what seems to be a date or his wife or his family, uh, because he needs to be also cooperative. I want him to play along with some things. And, and so I feel like a guy with a bunch of other guys might try to show off and steal the show a little bit, which I don't want. <laughs> I don't mind somebody who's difficult. I like that. And the audience likes that too, watching, I think, watching you overcome. But so I pick, and he also needs to be on my left, that ideally for some angles of things, magic trick wise. So I pick him first because he's, he has the most, you know, sort of criteria that I have to sort. Then I pick the first woman who's going to come up and I'm really looking for, you know, somebody with open body language and an expressive face and not necessarily or almost certainly not actually the most attractive woman in the room. Attractive is fine, but I don't want like modely slinky dress. And because first of all, it seems like a plant. <laughs> more like a plant uh but also i don't want for that to be what people are thinking about and also i have a bit where i say we're going to do the houdini challenge naked rope escape i want you to take off your clothes and tie me up that's the goofy little joke <laughs> and if it's with a woman who kind of leads with her sexuality that joke plays way different than yeah. somebody else so so she's the next person i pick so and i'm looking for somebody to react big right so when the when her card appears you know it's not just that the card appears but that she acknowledges large enough you know that her acknowledgement her reaction is large enough to play for a bunch of people that's a really long answer to your question but no that's that's uh, a master class is what oh that my is. god i'm just fascinated by that and so and the thing for me here is you're performing something and taking mental notes while your body and your mouth is performing a piece of magic, you're you're looking at the audience going, "There's my guy. There's the woman I'm going to use. Here's a yeah, kid that well, I can use later." That's yeah. it's so it's sort of like doing ventriloquism, right? It's you know, there's this dialogue, and there's also the secret or whatever the you know the operation of the puppet that's sort of covert. 
all these little things happening at the same time. It's yeah, there's, it, it's, a, that's another thing that keeps it sort of fresh for me is, you know, I can't, I don't feel like I can just walk through it and uh, do the show that I want to do, get the reaction I want to get. They tell us you, you got to be present during these things and you can t- sometimes see a performer who's kind of, you know, they've turned it off and they're just going through the motions, but not only are you present and right there, but you are also four or five moves ahead while you're right there. Right. Well, that's, that's right too. Yeah. There's also, yeah. Oh, something will happen and you'll go, Oh, you know what? If I refer to that 10 minutes from now, there's this bit that I know where that will fit in Yeah. 10 minutes from now. Uh, that's going to get a good reaction. Just having that in my back pocket for 10 minutes from now, God. call back. See, I, you know, I mean, that's the part about, I think performing that you, I mean, the, Talent always recognizes genius. And that's the part about <laughs> what you're doing that that is so genius that even a guy who does a fair amount of performing, not necessarily magic, but I'm shocked by the level of things that are going on while you're working, taking a joke and put it in your back pocket for 10 minutes later, picking three audience members, you're making the ropes come apart and cutting them. And all of that is happening at the same time. To me, that's like, wow, what, what a mind blowing concept to think about as a performer, to try to be that layered in what you're doing. It's that's incredible to me. Well, but it doesn't start there, right? I mean, with something new, like with something brand new, for me anyway, all I can think about is getting through it safely, right? Without <laughs> exposing the trick, right? Yes. Uh, so I, I, I have that. I've always felt like I've had that advantage in that I've always done a lot of shows. When I was, you know, in my late teens, I worked with Lance Burton. We did uh, these amusement parks three three years in a row. And doing three shows a day, seven days a week, sometimes as many as five or six on the weekends, depending on the crowd, how busy the park was. And, you know, so that's, you know, at least 21 shows a week. And he and I did that together for three years. And then I did it by myself after that, after he became quite famous. <laughs> well, you know, uh, he, I, he he told us, he said, people saw me on The Tonight Show for the first time and they thought I came out of nowhere. And he said, the stuff I did on The Tonight Show, I, I, I added them up. I'd done that more than a thousand times. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I don't want to kiss his ass too much, but I mean, he, to me, he's the greatest magician of my generation. And that act, there, there's no equal to that 12 minute bit. And I, I was lucky enough to be there for, all, you know, almost most, almost all of the sort of creation of a lot of that bit. I mean, it all evolved over time, but, you know, the bones of that were there at Tombstone Junction. That's where he hammered that out. It was, it was a beautiful, so I was lucky to be in the, right there at the forefront, uh, you know, the initial comedy club boom of the eighties and nineties. And so I was, after a couple of years of that, you know, starting in like, I got out of college in 81, did Tombstone Junction for another couple of years after that, I think. Then comedy clubs. And by like 85, I was a middle act in those clubs and then, and starting to headline some of those places. And by like eight, the end of the 80s, I was headlining across the country. And so I was doing 45 minutes to 55 minutes, you know, seven to 10 times a week at that point and i was just working all the time and i went from that to 
Harris here in Las Vegas, and that was twenty uh, ten shows a week for twenty two years. Uh, and so it's I've always had a great laboratory, right? So if, yeah, if I'm if I'm working on something, and to me all it is is feedback and and being a good listener. I'm listening to the audience and trying to see what they like and. I have the advantage I'm going to come back either I'm going to come back in an hour or I'm going to come back tomorrow and I can implement this tiny little change or this big giant change if if it's warranted to see if I can't make that trick better and better and better. It's that's John Carney talked about sanding things rather than hammering at them, you know, refining. <laughs> yeah. Refining, yeah. Refining. yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, there's still a place for hammering. I mean, I, yeah, the, sure. Me, that's early on right yeah. Your, yeah i'm 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 in my office and right now and so i mean there's you know right there i'm point there's two tricks that i'm working on actually three tricks one i'm really quite stymied on and one i'm really working harder on uh, but anyway they're sitting there for me to think about them and my daughter thankfully had some friends and so anytime i was working on a new trick when, she, when people would come over to visit my daughter, you know, her friends would come over and she's like, who wants to watch my dad do a trick? <laughs> and, but that's when, the, that's when the hammering took place, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Here, here at my house, as opposed to on stage. You know, right. all, the, all that, you know, beating it with a sledgehammer happened either in my head or doing it for my friends or family. <laughs> So after having done it for so long, what it is at the core of the cloak invisibility? What is it about that routine that audiences love? That's a I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. My first the first thing that pops in my head when you ask me that is I think they they love sort of participating in the joke. He knows he's not invisible. We know he's not invisible, but it's sure fun to pretend like he thinks he's invisible and we can think he's invisible. We can pretend to think he's invisible. And so there's, I mean, there's just a, that's some, I think it appeals to the sort of the element of play in people. You know, it sort of reminds me of, of one of those tricks where you take one audience member and you create one reality for him and the rest of the audience knows exactly what's going yeah, on. Right, and yeah, that person, yeah. and the audiences love that. And you've sort of turned that so that you're the idiot who doesn't know what's going on and they're all in on the joke. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly perfect. Yeah, sort of like uh, like paper balls over the head, that trick, or the powers of darkness, the Corinda thing with the rings. Yeah, I'm I'm the butt of the joke. I'm 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 a complete idiot. I think you know one of the things that uh, I always uh, mention when I tell people well, you got to go see Matt King if you're going to Vegas is the comedy is so good that you unless you have an affinity for magic like i do you don't you don't get credit for how good your magic is because your comedy is so funny that we that that unless you're sort of in on like that's an incredible cards across that's an incredible the things he's doing magically are astounding but if you're just a layperson you're laughing so hard you have no concept of 
all the other things you're doing. Like even me, a performer, had no idea you're doing a rope trick and you're then cataloging the audience and filing yeah, things right. away. Yeah, I mean, and what you said there made me think too about the cards, the cloak of invisibility and, you know, what's going on with the audience. I, I th There's also, and this is this is something I try to do with every trick, but there's also... Okay, this is there's this element of silliness and this element of stupidity, sort of. I'm tiptoeing around the stage in a yellow poncho, claiming to be invisible. And yet, at the end, it's hard to say whether it the, the ending is stronger because the that bit is so stupid. But I mean, that's a big magic payoff, right? And I yeah. think it's sort of surprising to the audience that it does, in fact, pay off. That yeah. strong. You, yeah. you just don't see it coming because it's, it, it, but it's yeah, so I mean, powerful. Magicians do. I mean, they know, okay, yeah, yeah. It's a card cross, right? right? And that's but, my point. But, I, but I think if, yeah, if you're not familiar with that plot, uh, then the fact that it, it did in fact happen in there is a really satisfying for the audience payoff. Agreed. To the silliness. Yeah. Who, who was it who said the problem with comedy magic is that it's usually neither? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think Penn said that. Yeah. 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 And you're firing on all cylinders when it comes to both sides of that equation. And I think Well, that's... I'm really trying. I mean, I you know, I mean, I I've always, you know, I I've had friends. I mean, Penn is one of them. You know, Penn like you know, you know how much more famous you would be if you dropped the magic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I'm like, and Jay Leno, I I've opened for Jay a number of times and he's like and he's always been like you're too funny for this magic stuff. You should stop doing magic and just do stand-up. You're too funny for that. You ever consider that? Yeah, but I'm not a stand-up comedian. I mean, I like stand-up comedy, and there's some element to stand-up comedy in my act. But what I really love is being a magician. And so it seems, you know, I mean, I don't know why I would get, you know, I'm not in it for the fame. And I don't, you know, who those guys are very nice about, you know, your career would be more successful if you did it this way but uh i yeah i i love being a magician and you know i'm not in it for the fame uh, it's just the money <laughs> no, it's, it's that old bill murray quote if you want to be rich and famous try being rich first and see if that just doesn't do it no i'm in it too because i love being a magician i mean i you know i've been interested in magic since i was a little boy and I'm uh, still really it's still my hobby too in addition to my profession i you know i like reading magic books about stuff that I will never do because I like how magicians think and I like reading about it, thinking about how they think. So that's Matt King and that's him in a nutshell. I mean, he is just the consummate magician studying magic when he's on his time off. Uh, it's his, his vocation and his advocation. And I think that's really interesting to me is that he still classified, he said something like, hey, it's still my hobby as well as what I do for a living. And that is really interesting. That that, that was sort of like a, an aha moment for me because sometimes, uh, like Rocky, you trade your passion for glory and then you forget that you uh, ever loved this in the first place and it just becomes drudgery. He has maintained this love for it that fuels just about everything he does on stage and off stage. And I think that's just a, an interesting sidelight to Mac King, who I think, as I've said, is terrific. I loved when he said that uh, in developing the routine that the cloak 
when he added that provided the Mac Kinginess Mac he needed Kinginess. that he has an understanding of what his act should be and it needed that little bit of Mac Kinginess uh, because he is doing a classic he is doing a classic but it you wouldn't even no. know because yeah. he's put so much Mac Kinginess on it and and really I mean if there's a through line to all of the interviews that we have done it is about personalizing yeah your magic so that it comes through you rather than this is a classic of magic called the cups and balls and uh, balls appear and just i mean it's his ability to turn a classic in magic into a mac king routine phenomenal and the other thing of course for me and i think i mentioned it in the interview as a performer the concept of him using the first seven or eight minutes of his act to identify the rest of what he needs for his act while he's doing something on stage, his mind is cataloging audience members, potential callback jokes that he can put in his back pocket. To me, that is incredible. I'm trying to think of a a superlative that, uh, that I could apply to that as a fellow performer, that idea of, of, of being able to split your mind into portions mm-hmm. and then perform a, a, a brilliant piece of magic while your mind is completely occupied. Yeah. It's Zen. And he's and, he's it's, doing his pre-show work during the show. Right. It's incredible yeah. to me. So I, you know, I, as I said, and have uh, gushed about him, I think he's terrific, but knowing that piece of it elevates him beyond any yeah. kind of, it's just like, what the heck, how is that happening? So I, I'm, I'm was thrilled to learn that because it's, I don't think I could ever get there, but it's certainly a North star to yeah. point your, your, you know, uh, it's brilliant work, brilliant stuff. And the one, the one final thing that I took away from it was, it was just so interesting how he's able to take an essentially close-up routine and make it work for, he set up to 10,000 people, that he's taken yeah. a close-up routine to make him play to larger audiences. And I was reminded, I think it was off mic when we talked to Lance Burton last time, and he talked about performing Boave for the late Max Maven at an event, uh, and that he had purchased oversized Boave cards, and that's how he's able to do it. And what struck me, Tying back to you saying we have these great guesses. We're sitting here getting magic advice from the likes of Matt King and Lance Burton. That's what I'm saying. I've yeah. been saying that for the, for the, from the get-go. It's not like I'm ever going to perform any of this, I don't think. But but listening to people, like I, I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, as you well know. I did. And so li- listening to his interviews I, or his Broadway show, I think... I, I've told all kinds of performers, I don't care if you like him or you don't like him, listen to how he thinks, because it, it it really is in the same way that Mac is thinking, finding out those sort of connection points and how you get from point A to point B by somebody at the top of their field yeah. is so interesting to me. Even if you're never going to perform it, the thought process is riveting to me, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Lance Burton or Matt King or, you know, Arthur Miller, it doesn't matter, Groucho, it doesn't matter. Somebody at the top of their game talking about the intricacies of what they're doing is, 
to me, uh, nothing better, nothing finer. I just love it. That, that window into somebody like that. That's reminded me that I never got back to Bruce Springsteen's PR person. Bruce wanted to be on the podcast night. He's got to make a mental note to track that down. I, 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 know just, I said no, because he doesn't do magic. We're a city <clears throat> apart and it's snowing to beat the band, but I'm coming over there to beat you up. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Anyway, we, we could rhapsodize about Matt King all day. I will... Uh, point you toward the show notes where you'll find some links to Mac performing, including one from back in 1988 in which he looks uh, like a child. It's just adorable. Yeah. And now, if, am I correct in saying that uh, this sort of wraps up, let's call it the first episode of season three. I don't know what else we'd call it, but yeah. th this sort of wraps it up. Uh, we tackled the first story from the self-working trick, by the way, I'm going to say this, John, just because it's an award-winning book. Am I right? Am I right, John? You are. The Minnesota Library Association awarded uh, the Self-Working Trick its top indie adult fiction award this past year. Was there any <clears throat> mention of the uh, audiobook or the narrator, perhaps? That was not mentioned. Uh, if that comes up, I'll let you know. Well, I'm not going to hold my breath. Uh, what's up next, John? What are we doing next, John? Next I feel time. like that little uh, cartoon dog. What is, <laughs> what's next? What's next, champ? What are we doing next, champ? Uh, next time, we're going to listen to the short story, The Trick That Cannot Be Explained. Ah. For trivia nuts out there, that was the original title of the third book in the series, which became The Miser's Dream, because the publisher I had at the time said, you cannot call a book The Trick That Cannot Be Explained. That title is just too long. So um, The Trick That Cannot Be Explained. And to help us better understand that famous trick, we have none other than Larry Haas, who wrote for Eugene Berger. Uh, his final two books on everything Eugene hadn't released up to that point, including his version of The Trick That Cannot Be Explained. And mostly uh, Eugene did not want that material out while he was alive because he was making a living from it. Yeah. But now we have that as a treasure trove, thanks to Eugene and Larry Haas. And I, I can't wait to talk to him. And if I've done the math correctly, it's going to be our 50th episode. Well, that's what we think. Uh, we're, we're pretty sure on that. 24 plus 24 plus 2, I think, is 50. So that'll be next time be Larry Haas, the trick that cannot be explained on our 50th episode. Until then, hang in there, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for letting me hang out with you, John. I appreciate it. I hope you're all enjoying this as much as I am. If you're not, I don't care. I'm having a great time. You want to say goodbye? You're just going to leave it on that sort of mean negative note. I didn't, what was it mean? I was just saying, I, I really love this. And uh, it, it now has gone beyond me. Uh, worrying about whether others are enjoying it. I've, I'm getting my own enjoyment from it. And, and gosh dang it, that's enough. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. Com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening.